Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, Citrix warns of new critical vulnerabilities in Netscaler, one of which has been given a 9.4 out of 10 on the severity scale. Also, a roundup of this month's Windows updates for Patch Tuesday. VB Script is officially being deprecated, which may have significant impact for IT teams. And a nice story for a change of a student who fixed a 22-year-old bug in Mozilla Firefox. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course, as always, is brought to you by my awesome sponsors. And that includes ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, Manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. It was Patch Tuesday again this week, and it was a relatively large one this time around, with 104 flaws patched, including three zero-day vulnerabilities. And a total roundup of the patches this month includes 26 elevation of privilege vulnerabilities patched, 3 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 12 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 17 denial of service vulnerabilities, 1 spoofing vulnerability, and a massive 45 remote code execution vulnerabilities. That may be the highest amount of remote code execution vulnerabilities patched on a patch Tuesday since I've started the podcast. So I can't go through every single patch and explain what it's patching, uh, but just to highlight a few, the three zero-day vulnerabilities included first CVE-2023-41763, which is a Skype for Business elevation or privilege vulnerability. So hopefully the fact that Skype for Business means that this one should be low impact as I hope not that many organizations are still running Skype for Business. Uh, But in bleepitcomputer.com's report, they stated that an attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could view some sensitive information, but not all resources within the impacted component may be divulged to an attacker. This flaw was discovered by Dr. Florin Hauser, who told bleepitcomputer.com that it is the same flaw that he actually disclosed back in September 2022, but back then Microsoft had refused to fix it at the time. Also patched this month is CVE-2023-36563, which is a Microsoft WordPad information disclosure vulnerability. Yes, you heard that right, WordPad, which I covered on the podcast a few weeks ago as it's being deprecated. But there's a pretty significant vulnerability in WordPad. With this vulnerability, it can be used to steal NTLM hashes when opening a document in WordPad. To exploit this vulnerability, an attacker would first have to log on to a system. An attacker could then run a specially crafted application that could exploit the vulnerability and take control of an affected system. Additionally, an attacker could convince a local user to open a malicious file. The attacker would have to convince the user to actually click a link, which (laughs) is not that difficult. Uh, But typically by way of an enticement in an email or an instant message, say, 
they could convince them to open a specially crafted file, which would grant them access, and then they'd get all the goodies. BleepyComputer.com reports that these NTLM hashes can be cracked or used in NTLM relay attacks to gain access to an account. And I'm going to come back to NTLM specifically later in this episode, as Microsoft had a major announcement regarding NTLM this week. But finally, in the patch roundup, CVE-2023-44487 addresses a HTTP2 rapid reset attack. And this one allows for an attack method which abuses HTTP2's stream cancellation feature to continuously send and cancel requests, which overwhelms a target server or application, imposing a denial of service. So, you know, that classic denial of service, uh, just hitting a service quickly with so many requests that it becomes overwhelmed and becomes unusable. And interestingly, this vulnerability has actually led to the largest denial of service attack in history, with Cloudflare stating the size of the attack that it mitigated is three times larger than its previous record. They also pointed out that it's quite alarming that this was achieved using a relatively small botnet that only comprised of 20,000 machines. Amazon Web Services, Cloudflare, and Google published a joint report on the attacks and stated that they mitigated attacks reaching 155 million requests per second via Amazon, 201 million requests per second reported by Cloudflare, and a record-breaking 398 million requests per second reported by Google. As always around this time, other vendors have provided patches for their own vulnerabilities, including the likes of Cisco, Apple, and more. As always, patch early, patch often, and keep listening to the podcast because I'm sure next week I'll be covering the inevitable problems that these patches cause. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of this. Application updates, Windows updates tend to break things, and we find out usually within a week or two of the updates. A quick reminder now that Windows Server 2012 and multiple editions of Windows 11 version 21H2 have reached end of support as of this month's Patch Tuesday. If you do not pay for extended security updates for Server 2012 and you do opt to still keep it in your environment, you are really tempting fate. So you can either optionally pay for extended security updates to stay patched, or you could move your server 2012 VMs up to the cloud into Azure and receive extended security updates for free. Microsoft have officially announced deprecation of VBScript. VBScript is being deprecated in future releases of Windows, they say, and VBScript will be available as a feature on demand before its removal from the operating system. And if you follow the podcast, you're likely not surprised by this as VBScript was omitted from a recent Windows 11 Insider build. It was also previously announced that VBScript would become an optional feature. It appears the security risks now outweigh the usefulness, I guess. But, you know, heads up if you're using a product, say, like MDT, the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, that relies on VBScript, so you may need to look for an alternative or at least start looking now. As alluded to earlier, Microsoft have shared that they intend to eliminate NTLM altogether in the future within Windows 11. So that is the major NTLM announcement that Microsoft had this week. However, there appears to be no set date provided, just the goal to eliminate NTLM in future. 
In a blog post, Matthew Palco of Microsoft shared they have worked on new features for Windows 11, initial and pass-through authentication using Kerberos or IA Curb, and a local key distribution center, KDC, for Kerberos to address existing use cases where Kerberos authentication will not work and thus today it fails back to use NTLM. They detailed the two major features, which will address two of the biggest reasons why Kerberos falls back to NTLM today. And the first being that IA curve that I mentioned, which allows clients to authenticate with Kerberos in more diverse network topologies. And the second is the local KDC for Kerberos, which adds Kerberos support for local accounts. Microsoft are also introducing improved NTLM auditing and management functionality to give your organization more insight into your NTLM usage and better control for removing it. They state that IA Curb is a public extension to the industry standard Kerberos protocol that allows a client without line of sight to a domain controller to authenticate through a server that does have line of sight. And this works through the negotiate authentication extension and allows the Windows authentication stack to proxy Kerberos messages through the server on behalf of the client. IA Curb relies on the cryptographic security guarantees of Kerberos to protect the messages in transit through the server to prevent replay or relay attacks. This type of proxy is useful in firewall segmented environments or remote access scenarios. The local KDC for Kerberos is built on top of the local machine security account manager, so remote authentication of local accounts can be done using Kerberos. This leverages IA Curb to allow Windows to pass Kerberos messages between remote local machines without having to add support for other enterprises services like DNS, NetLogon, or DC Locator. IA Curb also does not require you to open new ports on the remote machine to accept Kerberos messages. They say authenticating through the local KDC uses AES out of the box, improving security of local authentication too. In addition to expanding Kerberos scenario coverage, they are fixing hard-coded instances of NTLM built into existing Windows components and are shifting these components to use negotiated protocol so that Kerberos can be used instead of NTLM. In the article, they also provide steps that you could take to now begin logging and figuring out what is using NTLM in your environment so you can best be prepared and aware. Citrix have published an advisory for CVE-2023-4966 and CVE-2023-4967. And these are vulnerabilities that are present in Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway. CVE-2023-4967 is a denial of service vulnerability, which obviously is never good given it can lead to systems becoming unavailable. And it has an 8.2 out of 10 on the severity scale. But CVE-2023-4966 has been given a pretty high 9.4 out of 10 on the severity scale and has been described as a sensitive information disclosure vulnerability. And the advisory notes that both are unauthenticated buffer related vulnerabilities. So another instance of unauthenticated vulnerabilities, which obviously are never good. And given the fact that, you know, a gateway by its design sits out and is publicly exposed, having an unauthenticated vulnerability is really, really bad. Citrix strongly urges affected customers of Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway to install all the recently released version updates 
for Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway as soon as possible. And as has been the case for some time, they also note that Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway version 12.1 is end of life. So customers are recommended to upgrade those out-of-date end-of-life appliances to supported versions to address the vulnerabilities. And the awesome Thomas Poplegard has a great blog post on these vulnerabilities, including steps that you could take if you suspect that you're compromised. And I'll share a link to that and the CTX article with this episode of the podcast, which is episode 303, and you'll find that over at fivebytespodcast.com. Microsoft shared a what's new in Active Directory domain services via the Insider Preview for Windows Server V Next. It includes Kerberos support for AES SHA-256-384. LDAP now uses the latest S-channel implementation and supports TLS 1.3 for LDAP over TLS connections. A new domain controller is installed with a 32K page database and uses 64-bit long value IDs and runs in an 8 8K page mode for compatibility with previous versions. ADDS now takes advantage of NUMA-capable hardware by utilizing CPUs and all processor groups. And Active Directory now allows administrators to increase the system calculator replication priority with a particular replication partner for a particular naming context. And thanks to Oren Thomas for that great synopsis of the announcements. And I'll share a link to the full announcement if you wanna read more for yourself. In an issue I first became aware of thanks to the awesome patch management Google Mail group, some have reported BitLocker errors. Microsoft subsequently confirmed a known issue affects only client platforms, including Windows 11 21H2 and 22H2, Windows 10 21H2 and 22H2, and Windows 10 Enterprise LTSC 2019. From what they described, it appears the issue is with those who are managing their BitLocker settings with MDM or Intune, basically. They say that using the fixed drives encryption type or system drives encryption type policy settings in the BitLocker configuration service provider node in the mobile device management apps might incorrectly show a 65000 error in the required device encryption setting for some devices in your environment and as stated, MDM being Intune. They further clarify that affected environments are those with the enforced drives encryption type on operating system drives or enforced drive encryption on fixed drives policy set to enabled and selecting either full encryption or use space only. While it is never good to have a scary looking error message like this in your reporting or within the dashboards of Intune, the good news is that bleepitcomputer.com reports that Microsoft clarified that this is a false reporting issue rather than a legitimate error or concern that the encryption is not working. Starting this week, users logging into personal Google accounts will be prompted to create and use pass keys instead of passwords when possible. Google describes pass keys as a new way to sign into apps and websites. They're both easier to use and more secure than passwords, so users no longer need to rely on the names of pets, birthdays, and the infamous password123. Instead, pass keys let users sign into apps and sites the same way they unlock their devices with a fingerprint, a face scan, or a simple screen lock pin. And unlike passwords, pass keys are resistant to online attacks like phishing, making them more secure than things like SMS one-time codes. Ars Technica suggests that pass keys are a new way to sign in to apps and websites 
and they're both easier to use and more secure than passwords, so users no longer need to rely on trying to remember many passwords. The report does suggest that passwords will still be used in some contexts where the new passkeys are not yet supported. Microsoft have announced a preview feature for Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, which they claim prevents attackers' lateral movement attempts within victims' on-premises or cloud IT infrastructure by temporarily isolating the compromised user accounts that they might exploit to achieve their objectives. Rob Lefferts of Microsoft stated, quote, Attack disruption achieves this outcome by containing compromised users across all devices to outmaneuver attackers before they have the chance to act maliciously, such as using accounts to move laterally, performing credential theft, data exfiltration, and encrypting remotely. This on-by-default capability will identify if the compromised user has any associated activity with any other endpoint and immediately cut off all inbound and outbound communication, essentially containing them. And the bleepycomputer.com article I am referencing for this episode contains a video explainer from Microsoft that is worth checking out. As I said at the beginning, this feature is just in preview for now. The genealogy service 23andMe reached out to users this week to warn of a data breach which was uncovered when customer data was put up for sale on an online forum. 23andMe claimed this was a credential stuffing attack and that those who had their data taken likely had a reused password on their site. A separate report by BleepyComputer.com suggests that up to a million customers' data was discovered in a database. So if you use 23andMe and you reused a password, (laughs) your data may be compromised. And that's if it's true what they said that it was a credential stuffing attack and they didn't actually retrieve the 23andMe passwords for those users and just crack the actual 23andMe accounts that way. If it was credential stuffing, then yeah, if you had a reused account, you may be compromised. If it was credential stuffing though, and you did have a unique account, then you should be fine, I guess. And now some quick hit stories. Citrix has announced its intention to support Amazon Workspace's core. And this new support allows for organizations to leverage Citrix to manage the entirety of their virtual desktop use cases, including the workloads on Amazon Workspace's core for a streamlined cloud, hybrid, or even multi-cloud solution. And there was a video shared with the announcement uh, where they go over some of the features that Amazon Workspace's core customers can leverage, uh, like getting the benefit from what Citrix does best, in my opinion, like the HTX protocol for their virtual desktop sessions and also giving Citrix the benefit of reaching more customers across a large global cloud infrastructure that Amazon Workspaces and AWS in general offers. Also Amazon-related, Amazon will require all privileged AWS accounts to use multi-factor authentication for stronger protection against account hijacks leading to data breaches starting in mid-2024. So a good move enforcing MFA on those Privileged accounts just makes sense, and I'm glad they're making that move. Julian Moore and Carl Stallhood on Twitter recently shared that the new Teams client for VDI will not support Windows Server 2016 or published applications when working with Citrix DAS. So they're making that move to not support those very early on, I guess. Adobe announced a new symbol designed to indicate when content has been generated or altered using AI tools. 
The content credential symbol, as it's called, which looks like a lowercase CR in a curved bubble with a right angle in the lower right corner, will reflect the presence of metadata stored in a PDF photo or video file that includes information about the content's origin and the tools used in the creation. The information is automatically added by supporting digital cameras and AI image generator Adobe Firefly, or it can be inserted by Photoshop and Premiere. It will also soon be supported by Bing Image Creator. It is Adobe's belief that others will also use this CR symbol, which is registered by a coalition made up of Adobe, BBC, Microsoft, Nikon, and TruePic, which is collectively called C2PA. So I guess if you are bandying together to come up with what they hope will be a standard for indicating AI created or altered content. And to wrap up the news for this week, just one of those cool stories, at least cool in my opinion, Ars Technica reported that an electronic engineering PhD student named Yifan Zhu decided to spend some time between the end of his master's program and the start of his PhD program debugging and fixing a 22-year-old bug in Firefox. The bug was relatively minor, but annoying all the same. If you did a mouse over inside the browser on like a toolbar link, and just wait for a second, a little yellow box would present itself with a description of the link if you were using the browser on macOS or Linux. And if you then use the command tab to move Mozilla to the background, the little yellow box would stay in the foreground. The only way to get rid of it was to put Mozilla in the foreground again and then move the mouse off the toolbar. Another related bug was when on Linux, if you had the browser open with the tooltip showing, and then you open a virtual desktop session, for example, the text from the tooltip would be presented in like kind of a jagged fashion in the foreground. <clears throat> Zoo, who had no experience in complex projects or open source, says he just searched for tooltip in the entire code base, examined stuff for possible candidates, and then inserted debugging print statements to follow the execution. And this eventually bore some answers. When the mouse hovers over some element, a timer was started to display a tooltip. The timer would be canceled on a mouse out event, which Firefox wasn't getting when using keyboard shortcuts to switch windows or virtual desktops. Zoo pushed to commit the made tooltip displays based on Firefox losing focus rather than the mouse leaving the application. And then in the next few hours, they heard from Emilio Cobas Alvarez, who refined Zoo's approach and helped get the commit into the code base. I thought it was interesting that the bug was known about and reported over 20 years ago, but because it was so minor and it was deemed cosmetic, it was likely never actually going to be addressed by Mozilla, even though it was relatively low-hanging fruit to fix. So way to go to Yifan Zoo for fixing that. That's so cool. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Working Hard in IT shared a tip on Twitter who said, for people who need to get rid of the Azure Arc system tray in their environment, use a group policy object to block it from launching. And it's an HKLM run Azure Arc setup Microsoft Corporation, Winder, Azure Arc setup, SysTray, Azure Arc SysTray.exe. So that's way too difficult to decipher if you're listening to the audio only version of the podcast. If you're on the YouTube edition, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, 
If not, you can go to fivebytespodcast.com for this episode, which is episode 303, and you'll find a link to the tweet for more information and to be able to read it clearly. This week, I saw that Christophe Nasser shared a blog post that includes steps that he used during a customer random crash investigation and includes steps from the basics to analyzing memory dumps in WinDebug. So this is a really useful one for pretty much anyone in IT to see how others go ahead and debug system crashes. Finally, Mero from Microsoft had another great tip on Twitter asking, did you know that Microsoft Entra lets you create custom properties for users, devices, and other objects? I did know that because I believe I've done that with PowerShell, but they can be then used by any app, script, and even by Entra to create dynamic groups, apply conditional access policies, etc. And he provides a script that shows how it can be done. And this is something I've actually used in some control up script-based actions too. So it is a very useful one. But that's it for this episode of the podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening.